We're going to be in uh, the book of Daniel, uh, chapter 3. If you've got a Bible and want to turn there or just follow along the text that's printed in the bulletin. Uh, we're jumping in kind of mid-story. We've been going through a series on exile, which is one of the ways the Bible describes how our life as Christians feels in this world. That when you come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, you, you are brought into his kingdom, he says, in a way that sort of dislocates you, even if you live where you grew up. You become an expat in the nations of the world and always feel a little bit like a stranger because of that. You live as a resident alien, the Bible says. And so we're trying to dig into that a little bit and think about what that feels like and how we respond to it. And we're using the book of Daniel as an example because uh, Daniel and his friends have been taken into exile from Israel into Babylon. And we're having to live and uh, fit themselves into a world that was very foreign to them and very hostile to them for the most part. So this week we're jumping in kind of mid-story into a famous one if you have grown up around church much probably, but it's the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, three young Jewish men who uh, were in exile, who were working in the administration in Babylon, uh, but who ran into a, a crisis point when King Nebuchadnezzar made a statue and required that everyone bow down to it. Uh, it's kind of the same problem you get in any pluralistic society where you're free to worship whoever you want to privately as long as uh, you love your country more. <laughs> as long as the state is number one, you can worship whoever you want and you'll be fine. But, of course, they felt the tension of that and said, we can't worship your statue. And so they were threatened by being thrown into a smelting furnace if they didn't. And they still wouldn't. Uh, so it's a very dramatic uh, situation that they're in, and they're facing pretty certain death. And so we're going to look at what happens to them in this story uh, to think for ourselves what we can learn to prepare ourselves for the inevitable fires that come into our lives. You know, the uh, Bible always uses fire and furnace to describe affliction in our lives. And so we're going to expand that metaphor out a little bit as we think about uh, the experience of these Jewish men in this story. So let me pray for us, and then we'll read. Thank you, Father, for um, giving us ways to um, understand our life with you in this world through the stories of Daniel and his friends' lives. Um, we ask as we think about these things together that you would speak to us through your word. Uh, we want to know you. We want to be faithful to you in the way that these men were. We want to have confidence in your grace like they did. And so come help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Read with me beginning of verse 19 of Daniel 3. It says, Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. The expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. He ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks and their tunics and hats and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up in haste, and he declared to his counselors, Did we not cast... Three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, O king. And he answered and said, But I see four men unbound 
walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, the king's counselors gathered together and saw the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. No smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. And therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the provinces of Babylon. And this is the word of the Lord. So, some of you, I guess, will be familiar with the story of uh, Ernest Gordon and uh, the prisoners of war who, during World War II, were held in Thailand as Japanese prisoners of war. Uh, There's a famous old movie called Bridge on the River Kwai about this. Uh, Gordon wrote a book about his experiences called Miracle on River Kwai, and then in 2001 they did a movie about it called uh, To End All Wars that had uh, Kiefer Sutherland in it, oddly. But uh, it's the story of a pretty tremendous suffering that these people endured in the prisoner of war camp. They were there as slave labor to build a railway through Thailand and then through Myanmar, or with Burma then, because they wanted to invade India. And they were going to build it on the backs of the white prisoners, they said. And so uh, they basically were just using them until they were used up and had them in terrible situations. Um, They faced all kinds of tropical diseases. They had almost no medical care at all. They were always on the verge of starvation, malnourishment, because they weren't fed anything. And, you know, they died by the hundreds. It was a very terrible furnace situation for them. A uh, number of people there were Christians, though, in the prisoner of war camp that Gordon met. Gordon was not a Christian when he got there, um, but he became very malnourished during his time, and um, they pretty much had left him for dead. He had dysentery and no way to really cure that. And the food that they had was so meager anyway, no one could really help him by giving him extra food because they didn't have any extra food. But some of the Christians in the camp made uh, terrible sacrifices for him. They gave him their food when they had to go completely without food. He was so malnourished, he said at one point he could reach his, uh, he could close his fingers around his thigh. And I, I mean, so they, they thought surely, you know, he was going to die uh, soon. Uh, some of the people, through whatever little uh, black market they had, were able to purchase some simple medicines to help with his dysentery, and they wound up nursing him back to health or some help. He didn't die anyway. He said he had no previous interest in the Christian faith, but having seen the sacrifices of these people for him, uh, he was converted. And after the war, he actually became a uh, Christian minister. He was the dean of the chapel at Princeton Seminary for 26 years, I said, after this. Um, but the sacrifices that the Christians made in the camp, that weren't limited just to Gordon, uh, but uh, several of the friends, and so the people were 
making sacrifices that cost them their own lives for the sake of trying to spare the lives of others, uh, taking punishments that they didn't deserve. And we'll come back to a little bit of that in a minute. But some of the people who had sacrificed to help save Gordon's life died in the camp uh, as a result of their sacrifices for him. Uh, it's a very poignant story. It's a, at least the movie is worth watching if you want to do that. Um, but they learned things about what it means to have Christian faith in the furnace in that period of camp. It shaped their understanding of what faith looks like in Jesus Christ and what he really is calling us to do in our lives in a way that uh, less traumatic circumstances probably never could have for them. Uh, so I want us to think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's story, also learning a whole lot about what it means to actually trust God uh, in affliction that may help prepare us for inevitable affliction that comes into our lives, to steal us emotionally and intellectually to be better prepared, if you can be, uh, for troubles that will certainly come uh, in any of our lives. So first thing uh, that they learn in the fire is what faith really is. Uh, and they seem to have learned this in advance because the way they responded showed what real faith in God is. I think it's pretty common for people to think about faith this way. Like, if I have enough faith, or if I have like pure enough faith, I won't have to go into the furnace. Right? Um, if I'm doing it right, everything's going to go well for me. That's surely the case. And so, when you think about faith that way, and something goes wrong, you're really shocked. You know, like, why is this happening to me? God has let me down. I've kept up my end of the bargain, and He hasn't. Or why is this happening to me? I must have done something terrible that God is allowing this affliction to come into my life. And, um, but the Bible tells us don't think this way about faith. It actually says don't be surprised. We read this in our New Testament reading. Don't be surprised at fiery trials when they come into your life. As if that were abnormal. <laughs> that's not abnormal. That's, that's normal. And our faith is not so much that if we believe enough or strongly enough that God is going to rescue us from all kinds of trouble. He doesn't promise to do that. Our faith is that God will walk through our troubles with us. And it's a very different kind of faith because if your faith is just, um, if I trust God enough, He'll do what I want Him to do. If I believe hard enough, I'll move Him out of His reluctance to help me or something like that, uh, then you're really not loving and trusting Him. You're just using Him. Right? You just want Him for what He might do for you. But when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were threatened with the fiery furnace and said, you know, Nebuchadnezzar overplayed his hand and said, what God can deliver you from my hand if I throw you in the furnace? And their answer was pretty profound. We're reaching back a couple of verses here. But uh, they said, our God can deliver us. And we think he will. But even if not, we won't serve and bow down to your God. And what they were saying, even if not, even if he doesn't rescue us, we're loyal to him and love him and are staying loyal to him for who he is, not just because he might, what he might do for us sometime. Right? And that's what real faith is. That's what you need. Like, we love him for who he is, not just for what he might possibly do for us at some point in the future. So, and what they found out from this was that God really would be present with them what he's promised to do. And that's the fourth man of fire. Very uh, interesting thing. That, you know, we don't know for sure. The only narration we have on it is from Nebuchadnezzar. And you can't really 
guess his theology is all that great. But first he said he looks like a son of the gods, and then he says uh, God sent his angel to rescue them. And so we don't know. I mean, is this maybe it's an angel that God sent? Maybe it's uh, an, a pre-appearance of Christ, a Christophany, we call that in school. And we don't know. But what it is, it's God. God is palpably present there with them in the midst of the fire. And that's what his promise to faith is, is that he will be with us in our suffering, not that he will alleviate all of our suffering. If he does alleviate your suffering, great, right? I mean, I'm very happy that they got out of the fire into this. I'm sorry they had to go into it at all. But our expectation in the Christian life isn't that we're always going to be delivered from trouble before it happens, but that God's going to go through it with us. Think about the 23rd Psalm that people like to read for comfort in trouble. It says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil because you're with me. It doesn't say, because you're with me, I never have to go through the valley of the shadow of death. The faith is that he'll be with us. I spread a table for you in the presence. He spreads a table in the presence of my enemies. It doesn't say he spreads a table so I don't ever have to have any enemies. (laughs) It's a different thing. And so our faith is supposed to be in what God has promised he would do, not just what we hope he'll do. And our trust in him is for who he is and not just what he might do for us. So, if you have those expectations, you're a little tougher, right? When trouble comes, you're a little less surprised and shocked. Um, doesn't mean that your sufferings are less. But if you think it's normal in the Christian life to suffer, then you won't be as waylaid by it when it happens. Um, that's real, I think it's just a hard message when you live in as comfortable circumstances as we do. And when you suffer as little as we do, especially directly for our faith. Uh, but pretty clear common, uh, testimony of the Bible all the way through is that following Jesus involves following him in his sufferings. So we learn what faith is uh, in the fire. We also learn what deliverance looks like in the fire. Because God does deliver Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego here through a, a bizarre miracle. Like, yeah, none of us has an explanation for how this happens. One, the fourth man in the fire is a mind blower, but then their hair isn't singed, they don't smell like they've been camping even, they aren't hurt at all. You know, they're they're untouched by the fire, which is pretty remarkable. And it has to blow everybody away because the whole scene there is that all these people from all these conquered countries are there looking at the statue that Nebuchadnezzar built. They may be rolling their eyes, but they're all, you know, they're bowing down and doing what they have to do. Because they all know, obviously, that power rests with the military and economic might of Babylon. They are the boss. And in the real world, Babylon is it. Right? So, I don't know why these three guys uh, who are making some pedantic point about, you know, it will, they can't worship these, this other god or something. I don't know what they're doing because everybody knows in the real world this is how it works. And they've made this stand, probably feeling crazy because they're the only ones who believe this there. And then they're getting bound up and they're going to be killed over this. And they're thinking, you know, are we, are we crazy doing this? And then God delivers them. Because what they learned in the fire is that even in exile, even where Babylon seems overwhelmingly powerful and empire looks so impressive, God is still in control and he's still with us. Right? He still has power. Uh, over the nations of the world. Jesus is still the king over kings and the Lord over lords. And that's very well shown up in what happens for them here. Uh, They thought they were going to be delivered through death probably. You know, when they said, 
you know, God will deliver us, but even if not, I mean, even if he doesn't spare us from the fire, we're going to be okay because our confidence is in him. Uh, even in the next life, presumably that's what they were saying. Uh, but instead of being delivered uh, through death, like most of us are, they were delivered from death in this situation, which is uh, remarkable. But death itself, you can see when they're talking to Nebuchadnezzar, has been defanged in their minds. Death does not have the terrifying power over them that it has for a normal person, right? You know, the Christians have learned to look at death differently. Even prior to the resurrection, they seem to have a confidence beyond this life. But for us, we look at this scenario and see how much it uh, sort of reflects what Jesus Christ went through for us, the, the ultimate furnace that he suffered through at the hands of empire uh, when he went to the Roman cross. And he went alone to the cross. There was no one there with him. You remember his cry of dereliction from the cross, which was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he went into the furnace for our sakes and actually went all the way through to death for our sakes and his suffering. But then he came out of the furnace. He came out of death, not even smelling of death, with death having no power over him any longer. He has taken away the victory of death. The Bible says he's taken away the sting of death for us. So that the biggest leverage anyone can hold over us in our lives is the threat of death. And now that's been defanged by Jesus because of his resurrection. And this is the deliverance that we're confident in. That Jesus said we will be raised as he is raised. And so we know that ultimately... No one can do us harm, ultimate harm. Right? So in our sufferings, we're able not only to endure suffering, we're even to, able to invite suffering by laying down our lives for other people or running towards the furnace for other people's sake because we know that our Savior has loved us and has gone through the furnace for us and will never abandon us now. Right? So this shapes us, our thinking about being delivered this way. So we trust a God in the midst of our affliction not just by trying to hunker down and say, okay, I know I should submit to God because he's wise and I am not, and so I will submit. But that's not wrong, but that's not much either. We're given a lot more than that. We're also not just given God's sympathy, knowing that he uh, cares about us when we go through suffering. We're given his empathy. Like he's suffered with us. Like he's felt pain and death from the inside. The only God who has wounds, the only God who has scars, is the God we worship. So when we need to trust Him in the midst of affliction that He'll deliver us, uh, we're not trusting Him in the abstract. We're trusting Him because He has lived and died and been raised again for us. Right. And so that's our hope. And this enables Christians like in that POW camp to move out pretty sacrificially for other people. There was a, a scenario one day when they had finished work on the railroad and they were taking up the shovels and collecting them and counting the shovels and there was one missing. And so they lined everybody up and they said, there's a missing shovel. The person who took it needs to come forward and give it back now. Well, there was no shovel missing. The person had just miscounted them. But they're there leveling the gun saying, we're going to start shooting people if the person who stole the shovel doesn't admit. And so... Turns out it was Kiefer Sutherland. He, uh, but he, he stepped forward. One person who was playing stepped forward and said that he had taken a shovel. When, of course, he hadn't. And he was beaten to death in front of the men with a shovel. 
because he did that. He was able to sacrifice himself for his friends because he had a Savior who had sacrificed himself for him. And he knew that he would be delivered even in death, if not from death. Starving POWs uh, walk along the road on the way to the work sites, working on the railroads. They said the Buddhist monks would pass by them on the other side uh, in non-attachment and wouldn't get involved and ignored them. But some of the Christian Thai villagers at great risk to themselves would sneak them food. Uh, taking a risk for people they didn't know. Uh, able to move out, sacrificing themselves, risking their own lives because they knew they had a Savior who had gone through the fire for them. They were willing to do that. Uh, one prisoner of war had people give him food when he was malnourished to keep him from dying. And those Christians who gave him the food later died from malnourishment themselves. They gave him the food that would have saved their own lives. And the stories are poignant and beautiful to see uh, human greatness and beauty in a place of total degradation. And, but all of them drew the lines back to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for them as the thing that motivated them to be able to lay down their lives for each other. So um, they can risk and sacrifice because they've been delivered by Jesus. And then lastly, briefly, let's mention this. In the fire, they learn to experience freedom. And I think you'll know what I mean by this. I describe it. But it's, it's very odd in the passage here. It says they looked and I don't know why they bound them to throw them into the fire in the first place. Just rubbing it in. But the, uh, um, when Nebuchadnezzar saw them in the fire, they weren't bound. It wasn't just that they weren't hurt. It's they weren't bound. And the idea that suffering frees us is a pretty familiar idea. You know, because now the empire has no power over them anymore. They're free. Right? You, what are you going to threaten me with now? And for us, when we suffer, when we lose the things that we're desperate for, excited about, uh, that we think we have to, have to, have to have people's approval, a seat at the table, you know, success, winning, being a cool kid, whatever it is, all the things that we're nervous to try to have in our lives. Uh, when suffering burns those things away, it's not just a grief, it's freedom. I, I don't have to. I don't have to seek people's approval anymore once I've failed enough, once I've been afflicted enough. Once I've lost enough and had things that were precious to me burned away enough, they don't have any grip on me anymore. Do you watch that? Uh, it was, I think it was maybe the third season of Black Mirror uh, when they had the rating system. You know, like every social interaction you had, you would rate yourself and the other person. And, you know, the closer you came to having a five-star rating, you know, the better rates you got on your loans and the more opportunities were given to you. And, you know, it, it was uh, sounded dystopian until China started doing it for real. And uh, so, but, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's terrifying for everyone. They're, they're all acting super polite and nice, but out of sheer terror of being rated badly. It makes people completely false, but civil, right? And so, uh, but the girl who's the protagonist in the story um, is trying so hard to get her rating up because there's some people just above her whose favor she really wants to win. And it doesn't go well for her. And eventually she meets a truck driver, a woman who says, uh, yeah, I was panicked forever about having my rating be high until my husband got cancer and we were denied treatment for the cancer that he needed to live because our rating wasn't high enough. And so I quit. 
trying to get a good rating. And she was free. She was the only person in the, in the show that was free. And the girl who finally lost her rating and uh, threw a big fit at the end, um, at the end of the story, with a rating of like 1.4, uh, was finally free. Because they had no power over her anymore in affliction. Their approval didn't have the grip on her that they had before in her life. And uh, this, is, this is one of the ways in which uh, affliction works in a Christian's life like fire works on gold. It's purifying for us to suffer. And sometimes when we suffer the loss of things that are very dear to us, uh, we find that we are able to cling more easily to Jesus to make us happy and somebody and give us a good life. And as long as we've got all these other hedge bets and options of things that might make us happy and give us a good life, it's really hard to just find your satisfaction in Jesus. It feels like it's almost always the furnace that gets you to the place where uh, it's going to be Jesus or nothing for you. Which all of us would say is where we want to be as Christians, even though none of us would say we want to go through a furnace to get there. You know, so POW camp, yeah, people were pretty heroic. They suffered affliction with courage. They preserved human dignity in a place where there was no human dignity on offer. They were able to live sacrificially for other people when they didn't have anything. And they were able to forgive people who in no way ever deserved to be forgiven. And they were able to do this because they, like us, have a Savior who's gone into the furnace for our sakes, who went alone and who drank the dregs all the way down to the bottom and died, Uh, who's promised that he'll always be present with us no matter what he calls us to go through. And that gives us the steel we need, or it's the pathway to the steel we need to deal with affliction. Now let's pray. Father, when I read and think about things like this, I feel so soft because I've suffered so little. And I I don't know what my friends here have suffered or will suffer. But we would love to prize you above everything else in the midst of suffering. And as affliction comes, we pray that it would have its good effect on us, that it would draw us to you and knit our hearts to yours. We pray that you would teach us in the meantime to love you and prize your grace in our lives more than we prize the approbation of other people or any sort of influence and power we have. So uh, come, draw us to yourself. Make us yours, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We prepare to come to the Lord's table. Let's stand and confess our faith together using the Hubbard Catechism.